a lot of the British education system was introduced, the fun, the foundations of it, the fundamentals of it, way before we knew anything about how the brain develops or even how the mind develops, uh, particularly in teenagers, but also in children. And, you know, to take one example, which I often do, GCSEs. GCSEs were brought in in the late 80s. Late 80s, we knew nothing about how the teenage brain develops. And as I've said previously, it was assumed, even by neuroscientists, that the human brain stops developing in childhood. So that was the kind of basis on which GCSEs were. I mean, I expect they didn't think about neuroscience, but you know, that that was the the the, the science at the time. We now know we still have GCSEs. In fact, we have more GCSEs, we have more linear GCSEs, less coursework, more exams in terms of quantity of exams, but also um, amount of information to be learnt. But the science has really moved on, as I've been talking about. You know, we now know that the human brain undergoes vast change throughout the teenage years and 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 also not just the brain, but the mind, uh, including things like um, I don't know, planning and exploration and decision making and creativity. Creativity is has been shown to be higher in teenagers than in adults. And yet the you know, that that's what I mean by misalignment. The education system just hasn't, in the teenagers, hasn't caught up with those that new science, that new evidence base. If you knew that, would you really get, if, if you know, when you're designing the education system and thinking about what assessments young people should be taking, knowing that their brains are undergoing huge amounts of development, that neuroplasticity is heightened, that their ability to learn and explore and create is heightened, would you really impose such a huge amount of assessment in in the form of exams on them where they have to rote learn a massive amount of information at that exact age so that's what I meant by the misalignment welcome to rethinking education education's critical friend Hello once again my fathomless friends and welcome to season three of the Rethinking Education podcast. For any of you who are new to this podcast or to the quite remarkable Rethinking Education community that is growing up alongside it, here is a brief recap of the story so far. I started this podcast two years ago in an attempt to widen the debate around education which I felt had become rather narrow in recent years, in England at least. For example, in the 60s and 70s, people were writing all kinds of fascinating books with titles like Deschooling Society and Knowledge and Control and Teaching as a Subversive Activity. In short, there was a radical tradition of people asking big questions about how we educate children and young people. In recent years, however, this radical tradition has given way to an education debate that's mainly characterised by a focus on the minutiae of how schools work, curriculum and classroom practice and behaviour management and so on. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that these things are unimportant or unworthy of our attention. Making the existing education system work as well as it can is a really important thing to do. Indeed, this is how I earn a crust you can probably sense that there's a but coming, and you would be correct. Because making the existing education system work as well as it can is only part of the task that lies before us. 
we must also ask searching questions about the constraints of the education system within which we work, because there are many indicators, vital signs if you will, that all is not well. To cite just three causes for profound concern. Firstly, in this country alone, there are a million persistent absentees, and this is not a very big country. That's over one in nine young people are persistent absentees. And to be clear, to be, to be classed as a persistent absentee, you have to miss more than 10% of your time at school. And you might think, well, 10%, that's not that much. But if kids are in school for 40 weeks across a year, I think it's 39 weeks, so they're missing four weeks of school, 20 days of school, on top of all the holidays that they get. And that's just in that category. Of that million, there's around 100,000 who miss over 50% of their time in school. And there's around 30,000 who don't attend school at all. And those numbers are increasing all the time, especially post-pandemic. And when you stop going to school, like all kinds of bad things happen, right? You get like lots of letters home with horrible wording on them. You get home visits, your parents get fined. Astonishingly, parents and carers of so-called persistent offenders get threatened and in some, in some cases followed through with custodial sentences for, for non-attendance of school. And so these young people choose all of this strife over simply going to school every day. And I think that that should tell us something very important about those young people's lived experience at the receiving end of our one-size-fits-all education system. The second cause for concern, if you like, is the mental health crisis, which we hear so much about. The incidence of mental health disorders has increased by 50% in this country in the last three years. It's now estimated that one in six young people have a probable mental health disorder. So that's five in every classroom of 30. And it's also estimated that of those young people with a mental health problem, 70% have received no appropriate intervention. So lots of this stuff is just going undiagnosed and unmet and unrecognised. And it's not just young people either. The statistics around the mental health of teachers and school leaders is absolutely appalling. There's a survey that's done every year called the Teacher Wellbeing Index, and the most recent data that we have suggests that 70% of respondents, of thousands of respondents, have experienced symptoms of poor mental health due to their work. 42% think their organization's culture has a negative impact on their well-being, and 54% have considered leaving the sector in the last two years due to pressures on their mental health. This is not okay. <laughs> there are so many signs that people are really suffering because of the way that the system is currently configured. And the third cause for concern is something that we've spoken about many times in this podcast, the appalling fact that one in three school leavers leave school essentially being branded a failure. Again, this is a very England-centric bit of the conversation. Year in, year out, we fail one third of our young people by design. Like the kids who are born today, if we don't change the system, one in three of those kids will be leaving school branded a failure. There are many other problems that we could talk about and we don't have time to get into them, but I refuse to accept that these things are inevitable. Two years into this journey, I'm not at all convinced that the big questions that people were asking 
all those years ago in the 60s and 70s have been laid to rest. Indeed, after two years of going down this rabbit hole, speaking with a fascinating cast of characters about how and why we organise education in the way that we do and how we might create a more diverse, compassionate, responsive educational ecosystem that works for all young people, the big questions that occupy the vast majority of my waking thoughts have only multiplied. And questions are not the only thing to have multiplied. To my delight, and slightly to my surprise, this podcast has become a little bit popular with around 200,000 plays to date. The reason that this is surprising is that this is a long-form podcast with episodes frequently in the two to three hour range, some of them even longer. I think a podcast called Rethinking Education has to be long-form because education is so vast and complex that you can't hope to capture it in a half-hour format. Thankfully, however, it turns out that there does seem to be a thirst out there for these in-depth conversations about education reform. Alongside the podcast, a rather remarkable online community has emerged, the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, which now comprises around 800 people from all over the world. It's a really diverse community, people from over 30 countries and all walks of life, mainstream and alternative educators, parents and carers, lots of parents and carers who are very concerned about their own young people, young people themselves, homeschoolers, unschoolers, you name it, the list goes on, psychologists, researchers and so on. But we are all united by a common belief that we need to change the way that we educate young people and by a shared mission to be a part of that change. Building on the momentum of the podcast and the Rethinking Education online community, last month we staged the first ever Rethinking Education conference, which was both online and face-to-face. The face-to-face conference was held at the wonderful Addy and Stanhope School just a few weeks ago, and what an incredible day it was. This really was an education conference with a difference. Everyone is affected by education in some way, aren't they? Even if you don't go to school, your life is somehow marked by the fact that you don't go to school. And every time I ask someone about their experience of school on this podcast, it becomes apparent that their experience of school really shaped the person that they went on to become. But education conferences are generally not very representative of that wider population. You often find people in silos. You have head teacher conferences and special needs conferences and homeschooling conferences and so on. But you don't often get people from these different silos mixing together and sharing their experiences and views. And I really think that that's a huge part of why we have the problems that we face. The educational ecosystem is absolutely vast and it seems to me that nobody, not a single person, certainly not the Secretary of State for Education, has a clear picture of the entire thing. Head teachers and unschoolers don't often cross paths, and that's a great shame, as we'll see shortly. And so it seems clear to me that if we're going to fix the many problems that we face, the first step is for people from all those diverse walks of life I just mentioned to get together, to make our voices heard, to listen deeply and compassionately to one another, and to expand our understanding of all the myriad profound and really quite problematic ways in which the educational ecosystem affects many people's lives as well as all of the amazing ways in which education affects people's lives. And so the inaugural Rethinking Education conference was called Let's Get Together 
and get together we did, despite train strikes, despite breaking down vehicles, despite the passing away of monarchs, we came together in September and it was a wonderful thing. There were 450 people with decent numbers of people from all of those walks of life I just mentioned. There were around 100 speakers in 70 sessions throughout the day, some of them having multiple speakers. And I'm especially proud of the fact that 17 of those sessions were either led or co-facilitated by young people. In today's episode of the podcast, Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore makes a powerful case that we need to listen to young people and to take seriously what they have to tell us about their lived experience of the education system. And I could not agree more. Our youngest speaker was Lox, aged 10, a remarkable young man who has never been to school, who ran a moonwalking workshop on the day. He also contributed a brilliant video to the online conference. It really is a must watch. And there are many more brilliant young people aside. They're all amazing, but I'd like to give a special mention, if I may, to the contribution by Andrew Spate, a former member of Youth Parliament for Blackpool. Check out the video. I'll mention where you can find it in a moment. It will blow your socks off. As I say, the Rethinking Education Conference was online as well as face-to-face, and there are over 90 videos now available publicly for free on the Rethinking Education website. And if you enjoy them and you want to make a small donation to an educational charity, there are links where you can do that. We've been inundated with positive feedback from both the online and face-to-face conferences, and it's really clear that there's a strong appetite out there for people who want to engage in this conversation. But what's also taken me by surprise is that we've additionally been inundated with a wave of positivity and love. Taking part in this conversation is something that seems to make people feel good and it's infectious. I'll just share a couple of things with you before I introduce today's guest. Stan Pinsent wrote a lovely review of the conference in Schools Week. There's a link in the show notes. Stan hosts an excellent podcast, by the way, about learning and he co-facilitated It's literally called About Learning. And he co-facilitated a fascinating contribution to both the online and the face-to-face conference with Mei Ling Thomas on how we can act with integrity within a system that may not align with our values. Well worth a watch. Anyway, as I say, there's a link to the review in the show notes. The second thing I'd like to share with you is a blog written by Tina Farr, a head teacher who also contributed to the online and face-to-face conferences about the work that her school has been doing with Deborah Kidd on developing a curriculum of hope. As an aside, if you haven't yet listened to the very first episode of this podcast featuring my conversation with Deborah, I really urge you to do so. Anyway, Tina wrote this blog called Head Teachers and Unschoolers Never the Twain Shall Meet, in which she describes a moment of creative discomfort that she experienced at the conference in an unschooling workshop. Here's a short excerpt from this blog. Tina writes, A surprising moment in the conference was how I felt as a mainstream educator in the presence of one workshop about self-directed learning communities consisting of parents and educators who describe themselves as unschoolers. The message from the facilitator of this particular workshop was seemingly that the education system should be burnt down rather than changed. As the head teacher of a mainstream primary school, I made the point that some mainstream educators are as focused on human rights and children thriving as those who educate in alternative settings. 
The speaker told me that we don't have enough freedom to include any self-directed learning into mainstream, that we're too restricted. However, I wholeheartedly disagree. In expressing this, I was delighted that the workshop participants and the speaker wanted to offer advice and support. We're at the start of a long journey at St. Ebbs Primary School to create a mainstream school where all children thrive despite the misgivings of the system. From this conference, I know that there's a long list of other schools with similar missions, and I'm looking forward to connecting with them. We have a lot to learn from self-directed learning centres, agile learning centres and the like, and I now wonder about the power of true collaboration between those who have rejected mainstream education and those of us who remain. We could move fast and benefit many more children quickly if we consider what elements of these alternative provisions could be included rather than simply deciding that they can't. I know because I've already seen glimpses of the power of these strategies at my own school. By bringing such a diverse group of educators and parents together at this conference, we have created the opportunity for constructive conflict that is missing from so many aspects of our lives. As humans, our tendency is to avoid conflict for the fear of it being uncomfortable. For change to happen in education, we need to get seriously uncomfortable. We need to be willing to shelve our deep-rooted beliefs and preconceptions about the way things are. If we can connect on a deeply human level and listen attentively to each other, we could make magic happen. Thank you to the unschoolers for accepting me into the fold. I look forward to learning together. End quote. See those pretty sparks fly. As I say, there's a link to the rest of Tina's blog in the show notes. Finally, it seems likely that there will be a special edition of the Buckingham Journal of Education next year, Proceedings of the Rethinking Education Conference, which will be amazing and freely available. Watch this space. Unfortunately, it didn't prove possible to fix the entire education system with a single one-day event, and so it does seem likely that there will be further such events in the future, perhaps also regional and international adventures as well as an annual affair, but also, I really don't want events management to become my life, and so let's see what happens. On which note, by the way, if you're amazing at events management, or if you know anyone else who is, please get in touch via the Rethinking Ed website. Right, that is quite enough of that. On with the podcast. We have some fantastic guests lined up for season three, my goodness, including Sophie Christophie on consent-based education, a conversation that was precipitated in part by the last episode of season two with Johnny Hunt, which is a must listen if you haven't listened to that one. We've got a conversation with Diane Ray, a professor at Cambridge University and the author of Miseducation, another must read. I know I'm adding to your reading pile today. Mina Wood, who spoke at the conference uh, on her book, Secondary Curriculum Reformed. David Price about his book, The Power of Us. Jazz Ampour Far. I'm not sure what I'll be speaking with Jazz about just yet, but it will be brilliant because she is brilliant. I mean, Nick Shackleton Jones, who I don't know that much about, but who seems to be quite a radical thinker on how learning happens. Martin Robinson on his recent book, Athena versus the Machine, and also his new book about curriculum cycles and I imagine about the trivium as well. Ty Golding and Kat Place on the exciting developments that are happening in Wales currently, to name just a few. 
And to kick us off, we have an absolute zinger of a conversation with Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore. In case you aren't familiar, Sarah Jane Blakemore is a Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of Cambridge and the co-director of the Wellcome Trust's PhD programme in Neuroscience at University College London. Sarah Jane has been awarded numerous prizes over the last 20 years or so. There's literally three paragraphs if you want to read them on her Wikipedia page. She was also the winner of the 2018 Royal Society Prize for Science Books for her brilliant book, Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. I'm afraid it's another must read if you haven't done so already. I've wanted to speak with Sarah Jane for a really long time, not just about her groundbreaking career in understanding the teenage brain, but also partly because of her recent work with Rethinking Assessment and a fascinating blog she wrote recently about how GCSEs are completely misaligned with what we know about how teenage brains develop. And that's kind of the main idea that we discussed towards the end of this conversation. If you want to see a video of the last part of this conversation, the last 40 minutes or so, you can find it on the conference page of the Rethinking Education website. Okay, without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent conversation with Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore. I hope you enjoy the show. Sarah Jane Blakemore, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure and a delight to have you to have you join me today. And so, so I've been really looking forward to this conversation. This is going to be the first episode of uh, of the new season. Um, and last last season, season two began with a conversation with Mary Helen Imodino Yang, um, and that was fascinating. And that was the most popular episode to date and so it seems like people have an appetite for for neuroscience and for understanding the implications of neuroscience um for for education and so um i'm really looking forward to getting stuck into this and often i start the conversations that i have with with a sort of like a juicy topic of conversation and then we move into talking about the guests and then we figure out how to fix education more widely. But I think I'd like to switch those those topics around, if you like, today and start with you, because you come from outside the world of education, although obviously education is a big part of, of what you do. Um, but I think that it will make sense to understand the journey that you've been on and the understandings that you've arrived at about, about um, the, the ways in which young people's uh, brains develop and the implications of, the, of that understanding, if you like, of that science for education. And then we'll move into the education stuff. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds fine. Marvellous. So, so let's start with you. And this would be a very broad, broad canvas sort of conversation. So what was school like for you? What kind of school did you go to? Um, what, what, uh, what were you like at school? What kind of a student were you? Um, well, I went to, I grew up in Oxford and I went to a local state primary school where I actually did really badly I didn't learn very much um and my parents at the age of about nine realized that I wasn't learning very much and so at that point they sent me to a prep school 
uh, called Crescent, which doesn't exist anymore, but very small prep school. Uh, and then um, I got into Oxford High School, which is an independent girls' school run by the Girls' Day School Trust. It's a charity for the education of girls. Um, and it's, as you might know, it's very academic um school still is it does very well academically and um at that school I mean I, I wasn't particularly academic throughout my schooling I was not one of the most sort of academically talented students and I was probably as a teenager more interested in hanging out with my friends and um yeah things other than you know diligently doing my homework every day so I wasn't particularly popular with the teachers when I was at school and I didn't do very well actually academically until um my GCSEs I think I basically pretty much failed lots of my mock GCSEs and I got really scared because I realized oh my god this is actually really important <clears throat> and so um I did I started working, fortunately, just in time, just before my GCSEs, and then um, I did, did fine in them. And then I did uh, A-levels in English, French and biology. And at that it was really in the sixth form that I started to develop a kind of love of learning for the very first time. So, you know, really quite late in my development and started working quite hard and did well in my A-levels. Um, but yeah, I mean, so my 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 experience of school was very, you know, I, I then become became an academic, and my whole career is about learning and discovery and teaching. <laughs> um, but it was it was I was a late learner, I suppose you could say, and my experience of school, particularly being at a very academic, pressurized school, um, reflected that. And, you know, my my how much I liked school was really sort of correlated with how well I was doing and how well the teachers thought I was doing. So I wasn't particularly happy at school until until the sixth form when I started to, to really like it. But having said that, it was, you know, it was an amazing school, um, amazing teachers and amazing students who I'm many of whom I'm still really good friends with uh, 30 odd years later. <laughs> Fascinating. Thank you. I love that question. When I, when I first started this podcast, I was I was never sure whether I should ask people about their childhood, but it's often really interesting and revealing and there's lots of surprises there. Just going back to the to the start of that, do, do, can you recall what the you said that you you were struggling to learn in this in the state primary that you were in before you went to the prep school? Can you remember much of that? Can you remember what the sort of any any can you flesh that out at all? Um, no, I don't have very good memories. I don't have very vivid memories of it, but I think it was simply because it was an extremely big class size. In fact, I think in one year in my primary school, they put two classes together. So there were about 70 students, if I remember correctly, a lot of the time mm. <clears throat> with two or two teachers and a couple of teaching assistants. And what this meant was that if you would do it, if you were super bright and motivated, like, by the way, some of my friends were, they did really well there and thrived. But if, and also if you were really, really struggling or had some kind of special educational need, I think you got a bit more attention. But people like me, sort of in the middle, not very self-motivated, uh, got left behind. I think that was 
the the general explanation but I really didn't learn very much I see in my in my primary years until I was yeah after the age of about nine fascinating and and so and then you're to to skip forward a little bit so your A levels you said you chose uh, English French and biology and so you weren't going down as strongly obviously biology's in there but you you hadn't clearly set your sights solely on on science yet where where did the where did the interest in in science or neuroscience begin yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I think my interests were broad, you know, I didn't want to specialise. Um, and that's something that I'm still interested in the fact that we force students in our country to specialise very, very early. And we have, you know, relatively very narrow education system at school and at university, um, compared with other countries. But yeah, I didn't really want to specialise. I liked lots of different subjects. Um, but I knew by then that I wanted to do psychology at university. I, I was absolutely convinced there was no question I wanted to do that. And psychology is a science, but uh, you don't have to do all three sciences to study it. Um, and so I sort of took advantage of that fact and decided to study the subjects that I enjoyed rather than studying subjects just because they would get me into a certain course. I'm going to play this bit to my son because he's um, he's currently uh, just he just gets his GCSE results this week. He's about to start A levels and he's chosen three, but he's not sure about it. And I agree with you the the fact that we specialize so early that you narrow down your your range of he's interested in about twenty things. Yeah. You know, I don't understand why we couldn't do an A level system where you do twenty like nano courses or eighteen say like six a year. Or no, that would be three years, wouldn't it? Twelve, whatever it might be. But like you're interested in it, just as your interests are blossoming, mm. and sort of going outwards like a tree. Uh, as you, you know, you might have a fleeting interest in in cinema or in French literature or in whatever it is, robotics or you know, plumbing, whatever it might be. You just sort of want to find out about stuff and and find out how far you want to go down that journey. But it does seem like we just. We narrow down people's options. We do, and it doesn't have to be that way. It's not that way in many other countries. I mean, they might not do 12 subjects, but they do six. And they have to do <clears throat> subjects from different areas, humanities, languages, sciences, maths. Um, you know, why, why force people to narrow when they are so young and they're still developing in every way? Mm. And they might not have a clue what they want to do later in life. And what they, the subjects they choose now at age 16 determines that to a certain extent. So it's not a trivial decision. No. At my school, um, I'm just remembering you were saying, you know, if you hadn't, if you have an interest in film or theatre or whatever, <clears throat> it would be nice to do those subjects as well. Actually, when I was in the sixth form, we could do that. We could take these short courses in a whole range of different um, sort of not non-traditionally academic subjects, which was really nice and uh, you know added some breadth to the curriculum. And I just, I think now there is so much pressure to learn all the information you need to learn for the exams that those kinds of options have just been squeezed out. Even things like sport has been squeezed out of, you know, school life after a certain age, really. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it, it is ridiculous. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't be hard to fix it. Like you, you, you could have things that are equally rigorous but just rigorous nano courses, you know, and like it's just like nano degrees uh, are a thing now, and people are people are 
changing the course of their career in this because of a three-month course that they do but 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 to come back to the thing that you said about psychology is interesting because harry recently read a book about psychology and he was really his interest was really piqued by it and he's thinking of of swapping it in for one of his other subjects but i like what you just said that if he's really interested in psychology and he knows that he wants to do that at degree level if he goes on to do a degree then that does free him up to to explore other stuff uh, yeah one thing i'd say about psychology so psychology as a degree I did psychology as a degree I now teach and have for many years taught on psychology degree courses at UCL and now Cambridge and one thing I'd say is that uh, even though you know you can you don't have to do um, all sciences and maths for most psychology courses in this country um, it is worth remembering that these psychology degrees are a science and you will start in the first year having to do huge amounts of maths in fact statistics course yeah. uh, courses um take up a lot of the first year and you'll have to do experiments from day one and the whole you know psychology course is basically a series of experimental experiments learning about experiments doing experiments sometimes i worry that the um the fact that you don't have to do sciences gives the sort of misleading impression that psychology isn't a science and actually psychology a level is sometimes uh seen as you know not not the best um basis the best foundation for a psychology degree because it doesn't really teach it as a science like it's taught in a degree now that's also i always tell um stu- uh, um school students that if they're thinking about doing psychology just really think hard about whether the psychology A level is the best preparation for the psychology degree. Sometimes it's not. Mm, interesting. Thank you. I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. Because I, I did um, psychology, I did biology and psychology for my degree. Um, and the, the, it was interesting, actually, because the reason that I did that was because I was interested in the brain, essentially. And I thought, oh, well, biology and psychology over that. But actually, if you do biology and psychology as a combined honours, it's really diverse. And you're doing like, you know, ecology on one hand and social psychology on the other. And they're all very interesting, but it wasn't really where my heart was at. I was really interested in the in the neurobiology stuff. In the humans. Um, yeah, exactly. What's going the on plants. In, in the old noggin? And so... Um, Thank you. That's really useful because people often often say that the, the GCSE psychology as well is, is essentially you need to remember lots and lots of dates and, and names of people who did specific experiments. And it's almost like a history of psychology. Yeah, yeah um, and that is course. absolutely not what the psychology degree is about. Yeah, absolutely. And so so when did the when did the interest in 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 like it seems like we had a shared shared interest in the brain like so so when you when you said you want to do psychology was that clearly where you were wanting to take it rather than you know social psychology or clinical psychology no definitely not so I mean first of all my dad was a neuroscientist and so I knew a lot about the brain as I was growing up I knew a lot you know I spent a lot of time in his lab waiting for him to finish experiments um he would talk about the brain a lot <laughs> when we were growing up. He did programs about the brain, wrote books about the brain, etc. And uh, I and I was not, you know, at that point, like most teenagers, I definitely did not want to go into what my dad, my dad's job. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so my understanding of psychology came from books I was reading about more like social psychology and developmental psychology, and particularly. Um, I, when I was about 15, I think, 14, 15, I read a book by Professor Uta Frith called Autism. 
And I thought this was just so fascinating, this condition called autism and trying to understand through ex psychological experiments in, with children, um, the mechanisms underlying the characteristics or the symptoms of autism. Um, so I thought that's what I want. That's what I want to do. And I wrote to when I was about 15, I wrote to the author, Uta Frith, uh, to ask her if I could do work experience with her. Because at my school, we were encouraged to uh, do a week or two's work experience after GCSEs. And Uta wrote back immediately and said, yes, absolutely, which I now know is very correct, characteristically generous of Uta. <laughs> um, and so I went to her lab in London and spent a couple of weeks observing her students and postdocs carrying out um, studies, carrying out experiments with small children and children um, with, uh, with autism, typically developing children. And I just, I just became really fascinated in, I think I, what I really became fascinated in it is in the experiments, the fact that you can <clears throat> design, exper you know, experiments weren't all about physics and chemistry, which is really what I'd learned up until that point. You could do ex really clever experiments where you isolate components of the mind and you look at how those components of the mind develop during childhood or are different in some children compared with others. I thought that was so cool. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. I did not still put that aspect of psychology together with the brain, the thing that my dad worked on. <laughs> and it was only when I started to do my um, degree in experimental psychology, the first lecture, I think, or my first tutorial was on neurons. And I thought, oh, my God, that's exactly what my dad does. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, psychology, of course, the mind, you can't dissociate the mind, the human mind from the human brain. And you're going to have to learn a lot about the brain if you want to understand the mind. And actually, throughout my degree, I became more and more interested in the brain and how the brain works and how brain function and structure um kind of creates our mind, our mental states, our emotions, our cognitions, our interactions with other people, our experiences of the world, and how that can sometimes go wrong in really interesting and unusual ways. Like, for example, um, in the uh, symptoms of schizophrenia, I became really interested in, by the end of my degree, this is in the third year, I became really interested in the, the symptoms that people with schizophrenia often experience. So things like hallucinations, imagining voices, hearing voices inside your head, or being really paranoid, thinking that people are out to get you, that, that your TV is watching you. But first of all, why? You know, why does the brain do that for some people? And the other side of that coin is why do most, most of our brains don't uh, uh, let us experience things like that. Like when, we, when we're thinking, we don't experience our thoughts as someone else's voice inside our head. How is that possible? How does our brain label our own thoughts as our own and not as an external voice? I became really interested in that during my degree and that's what I then went on to study in a, in a PhD. Fascinating, yes, indeed. And, and you had some amazing supervisors. You had Chris Frith and Daniel Walpert, didn't you, as supervisors? You must've felt like you got the dream ticket yeah, so I mean, I was, as I mentioned, I did work experience with Uta Frith. And then just by coincidence, I became really genuine coincidence. I became interested in reading Chris Frith, her husband's work during my degree, because he worked on schizophrenia and he was asking the precise questions that I was interested in. I mean, they were questions I became interested in because of his work. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, yeah, on, on self-monitoring and how we monitor our own actions and how we 
distinguish our own actions and um, perceptions and uh, experiences as our own and we don't confuse them with other people's and so yes then I so I applied to do a PhD at uh, UCL where Chris Frith worked and uh, I got funded to do that but I, I got funded on this really amazing uh, PhD program the welcome PhD program in neuroscience which um, was uh, it's just ended actually uh, well it's in its final year now in fact yeah, I, I ended up co-directing it for many years more recently. But in, in this PhD program, you can be um, someone who's you don't have to be a neuroscientist to begin with. You can be someone who's trained in any area of science. So there are people who've done degrees in physics or chemistry, biochemistry, psychology like me, um, maths, as well as neuroscience, biology, all sorts. Um, and the first year of this program you do lots of courses in neuroscience to try to build up your knowledge of basic neuroscience. And you also do three lab rotations. So three um, lab projects, and they have to be in different areas of neuroscience. So they have to be molecular neuroscience, understanding some molecules in the brain, like neurotransmitters, cellular neuroscience. So understanding neurons and how they work, cells of the brain and systems or cognitive neuroscience. That's more kind of the level of you know, human neuroimaging work, for example, understanding how the brain functions in living humans and a bit overlapping with psychology in a way. So I got this really good, broad um, uh, training in neuroscience before then specialising in my PhD with Chris Frith. And I then uh, did, well, one of my rotations, one of my lab projects in my first year was with Daniel Wolpert, who works on computational models of the brain, mathematical models of the brain, mm. that, and particularly how, how the brain controls movement. And it turned out that his mathematical models of how the brain controls movement, and particularly how the brain predicts movement um, and predicts the consequences of our movements, um, was really overlapping with Chris's Chris Frith's ideas about how the brain monitors actions but they had completely different backgrounds uh, Daniel was basically a mathematician Chris Frith was a clinical psychologist um, but very complementary ideas and very different ways of studying these ideas very different methods of studying them so I was very fortunate to be able to be co-supervised by these two people from very different backgrounds yeah how interesting and also it's incredible that that you wrote this letter um to Uta Frith uh, uh did you say age 15 it was for work experience in your final year of, of school given that you later went on to co-author a book with her which won't be news to you but maybe news to some of our of our listeners or viewers in, in case anyone's watching this part of the conversation mm-hmm. uh the learning mind lessons for education uh, if we can just skip ahead a little bit to this because while we're on mm. this topic what was the thinking behind this book well how did this book come to uh, be written well um so i during my phd i got you know back in touch with my supervisor's Chris Frith's wife, Uta Frith, who I'd done work experience with a few years earlier. And we just became very, you know, she became a sort of mentor to me, I suppose you could say. We got on very well. And we started to talk about, you know, she she was she is like one of the world's experts on autism and dyslexia. So she, for her whole career, she's been interested in education indirectly. Um, and worked a lot with schools and teachers, it, it, particularly special educational needs. Um, teachers 
and we she was becoming so you know remember that back then that was late 90s human neuroscience human neuroimaging was only just starting to take off it was really you know growing exponentially but it was still very very early science at that point but Uta saw this like you know like other people did around the world she saw who who worked on the fringes of education and then and the mind she saw this potential of um new findings from human neuroscience and particularly neuroimaging um and linking that with implications for education and how to teach children and young people um and and at that point you know there was just no link between them i and and on either there was no link between them or there were links being made that were just completely over the top and very kind of speculative and um unconstrained um and I mean, that's around, you know, 1997, I think, is when John Brewer published his paper, Neuroscience and Education, A Bridge Too Far, because oh, yes. people people had started to make these links between um, how the brain learns and how the brain develops and education. But and those studies were often, you know, at, um, studies from animal research, because that was the vast majority of neuroscience research until then had been from in animal research and making links between you know this animal research on cells in a particular tiny region of the brain and um educating children in classrooms i mean that really is a bridge too far i think uh, but uta uta pointed out that you know the, the the area that she worked in cognitive experimental psychology is well brewer himself said you know that's the, that's the bridge that you need psychology is the link that you need and she saw that the kind of work she was doing, experimental psychology, could provide that link and that there really might be opportunities to make links between neuroscience and education via cognitive psychology. Um, and so we we started talking about that a lot. There were various initiatives at that point, um, like, for example, uh, there was an ESRC report in the UK on the links between neuroscience and education, which Uta led on and I helped with. Um, and there was also something else, which is that I, during my PhD, I did a secondment at the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology for three months, funded by the British Psychological Society, where I wrote a report for them on um, early years learning mm. and the a kind of evidence from neuroscience on um, uh, or what neuroscience tells tells us about early years learning. For example, when should children start formal education? Um, when when should they learn to read and write as opposed to just playing? Um, evidence from different countries around the world, that kind of thing. And that, that, I guess, initiated my real interest in this area. And that's when I started to talk to Uta and we realised we had these mutual interests in neuroscience and education. And then it, it just you know, the momentum was there and it just went on from that point. So we, and we decided to write a book together. Yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant read. I really enjoyed it. And it was, so it's 2009, is it? 2005. Oh, no. oh, sorry. 2005. This was, this was, was a published. 2009 reprint. I think that I have. The pub, it was published the day my son, my first son was born. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So I remember um, 2005. <laughs> made two babies on that day. Yeah. And and so that's a little while ago now, seventeen years. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to sort to go back and to revise it and to bring it up to date with what's happened since then. Um, yeah, I mean we could do because masses 
has happened since then. The field is completely different. It's huge. It's vibrant. It's growing all the time. And there's a whole lot more evidence to write about. The problem is that I became more specialized in the adolescent brain. And so that's what I decided to write another book in. Um, but yeah, I mean, huge amounts has changed since then. And occasionally I do flick through that book, The Learning Brain, that I wrote with Uta. And it's really eye-opening. You know, it's like looking back at history. For example, there is <laughs> one short paragraph, I think, on the adolescent brain in the whole book. Because at that point, so we published it in 2005. That probably means we stopped writing it in 2003 or four. Um, because, you know, there's a lag between finishing a book and it actually being on the shelves. And so early 2000s, almost nothing was known about the human adolescent brain at that point. There were a, a very small handful of studies coming out of big American labs and they were really exciting. So labs run by Elizabeth Sowell on the one hand and Jay Geed on the other. Those papers were really exciting because they completely contrary to what the previous dogma suggested and what I was taught, for example, at university, they suggested that the human brain develops very substantially in a very protracted manner right throughout childhood and into adolescence and even into the early mid-20s. But there were, you know, a, a handful of papers that kind of hinted at this. So it was like, this is a really exciting potential new field. But very few people were working in that field at that point. I wasn't. I was working on something different. But I so there's one little paragraph um, in the learning brain saying, Hmm, there's these, these new studies that suggest that the human brain continues to develop into adolescence. That's a really interesting phenomenon that will, if it's true, will have implications for education, huge implications. Um, and, you know, that, that that's about the point when I started becoming really interested in working on the adolescent brain myself. And since then, I have been running a lab looking at exactly that. Right. I see. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So 15 years ago. So this is a very nascent field. And was it so was it the interest in schizophrenia that, that sparked your interest initially that it was about, you know, why why does this very strange perplexing condition manifest in in adolescence as, as many other mental health conditions uh, manifest in adolescence and what's going on in the teenage brain? Was that the spark? Yeah. Several different things converged to spark an interest in, in me in the adolescent brain. But the main one was the fact that I was doing a PhD and then a postdoc in France on schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is a psychiatric condition that's characterized by things like hearing voices and being paranoid. Um, it's very severe and disabling um, uh, mental illness. Uh, and what's interesting about it is that it usually um, has its first onset in late adolescence or early adulthood. So I tested many hundreds of patients, both in the UK during my PhD and in France during my postdoc. And, you know, one of the questions I would ask them in this sort of background to the to the studies was, when did you first start, start experiencing your symptoms? And there wasn't a single exception. Everyone said some age between about 18 and 26 I, I just started to become really interested in why this was. What is it about late adolescence, which makes it a clearly vulnerable time for the development of these severe symptoms? So it seemed like you could you could almost get to sort of 
1718 and be a sort of typically developing child and adolescent more you know more or less there's some evidence that there are some subtle signs um preempting the full diagnosis of schizophrenia but you could you could you could be a pretty sort of typical child and adolescent and then start to develop these really debilitating symptoms so why is that and what is it about brain development in the teenage years that is different in teenagers who go on to develop schizophrenia compared with teenagers who don't. That's what I was really interested in. And I became interested in that question when I was working in France in the early 2000s. And I thought, oh, I'll just look it up. <laughs> I'll just do, a, do a, a search in the scientific <laughs> literature. So I did. And to my surprise, that, you know, like I said before, very, very little was known about how the teenage brain in humans develops. There was just virtually nothing out there let alone how the brain develops in teenagers who go on to develop schizophrenia or any other mental illness, actually. Um, so I, that, you know, that was really when this kind of seed was start, was sowed in my mind that I, I thought that was such an important question to look at, to find an answer to, that I, you know, I started to become interested in understanding more about how the human um, brain and mind develop and at the very same time there were a couple of very recent papers published by um, Jay Geed and Elizabeth Sal suggesting that the brain undergoes huge amounts of development during adolescence so I thought okay there might be you know there might really be a field here mm. <laughs> there wasn't much one at the time and actually a lot of people said to me that's too big of a risk, like there isn't a field. In fact, it wasn't just people advising me. I applied for a grant to study the adolescent brain and I the reviews, which I've still I've kept, say that I, it was rejected and the reviews say exactly that. So, you know, grant applications get peer reviewed anonymously. And the reviewers said, no, this can't be funded because it's not a field. If you really want to study brain development, you have to study it really early on in life because that's when the brain develops that that's when brain development takes place and finally you like as in me the applicant has no um experience in doing any developmental work so it's just too big a risk you shouldn't fund this they were saying to the funders um which, i mean all of that i suppose was true at the time but then i did get funded so one uh funder the royal society was willing to take that risk i suppose you could say <laughs> and um uh and yeah i mean since then it's the field has grown. So it's now a very huge burgeoning field with, you know, journals, uh, special issues, books, labs all around the world, and more and more discoveries about the adolescent brain, provoking more and more questions about the adolescent brain. Um, so yeah, it's been exciting. And one one thing to say, going back to, you know, the thread running through all this, I think is is interestingly as I talk about it, it's Uta Frith. And I remember having a conversation with her in the early 2000s about how I was really interested in studying the adolescent brain, but it was too much of a risk because, you know, there was, there was nothing out there. And what if, what if, what if there were no findings to be had? And she just encouraged me to take this risk. And I think that that is interesting because I, I tend, you know, like a lot of people tend to be quite risk averse. And especially in, in science, you have to balance up the benefits of taking risks with the um, dangers of being overly ambitious or doing unfeasible research and it I, I just don't know whether I would have 
started on this journey if it hadn't been for Uta Frith encouraging me to take that risk. Wow, amazing. And so this is obviously, um, we're getting into material now, which is which you covered in great depth in your brilliant book, um, Inventing Ourselves. Um, and the, the first thing is, just before we move on from that, why the title? Why did you, I've, I've seen it elsewhere that you, that you refer to the, the teenage years or the adolescent years as a, as a process of constructing ourselves. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so... Um... If you think about adolescence, like let's just move away from the science and think just anecdotally about your own teenage years or teenage, you know, you have teenage children or you work with teenagers. This is the period of life when our sense of self, of who we are, undergoes huge transition. Um, if that's not to say that prepubescent children, young children don't have a sense of self. Of course they do. In fact, a sense of self develops, a very rudimentary sense of self develops extremely early, maybe even but there's some evidence that babies are born with a sense of the difference between their own bodies and other bodies. <laughs> um, but the sense of self, self-identity, undergoes really profound transition in adolescence, and particularly the sense of social self, that is how other people see us. That becomes particularly important during adolescence. Peers become particularly important. Interaction with peers um, the views of peers, the attitudes, the actions of peers take on heightened importance in adolescence. And adolescents, not all, but, you know, many adolescents form a sense of who they are and evaluate themselves through the eyes of their peers in a way that they didn't do in childhood. That's the key thing. Something changes at around puberty. And I think that, you know, just <laughs> um, mixing areas, I think, from a kind of evolutionary point of view, that makes sense. What is adolescence about, this long period of development that humans go through? It's about becoming independent. You have to go through adolescence and come out the other side as an independent adult who is independent from your family, from your parents, who's affiliated with peer groups, who knows how to affiliate with new peer groups. It's really important evolutionary pressure on adolescence to be socially accepted by peers and figure out what how to do that and what peers are thinking and, and feeling and how they're behaving um, in order to become independent from from families so I think that kind of sense of social self is what is really undergoing profound development during adolescence um, and in a way we we as adolescents invent ourselves like you know if you think about your own teenage years that's probably the time where um uh tastes and how you characterize yourself to other people became particularly important things like music tastes and fashion taste and what kind of peer group you want to hang out with what kind of person you are even things like your moral beliefs and your political beliefs might have taken on more weight in in your teenage years because they form an impression of yourself to other people so that's what I mean by inventing ourselves yeah thank you <clears throat> I can see that and and that, that's very well put um and so and so the, the, the first thing that that really sort of surprised me when I started reading your work and and listening to your talks and what have you is that is the, the, this broadening of the canvas if you like that people often I think that the the, the lay sort of understanding of adolescence is like sort of age 13 to 16 or something like that or maybe like 12 to 18 a, a push 
But you just you you, you talk about something that's that, that's a much broader sweep, isn't it? That sort of starts around the onset of puberty and and settles when you when you become settled into some sort of an adult way of life, and that could be happening way well into your twenties. Um, and 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 that so is that is that based on is that broadening of the canvas based on your understanding of um, of what's happening in the brain and that, 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 that these changes are happening far further into what we would have previously considered to be adulthood. Like it's always a bit jarring, isn't it, when you hear somebody described on the news and they say an 18-year-old man has been arrested and you think, that's not a man. <laughs> You're not a man or a woman at 18. You're still sort of in development. Um, so, so is that broadening of the canvas based on, on our understanding of, of what's happening in the brain? Um, yes. So... When I first started working on adolescence, you know, the definition was very uh, debated, like the definition of adolescence from the world. But adolescence is a word that's only been used for about 100 or so years um, to describe this age group. And it and the definition has changed throughout those years. So the World Health Organization defines it as the second decade of life. Many people define it as the teenage years. So, you know, legally you become adult at 18 not even the teenage years, so before the teenage years end. Um, other people define it, and, and for many years, I like this definition, and I used to use it a lot, the period of life that starts with puberty, so that's the physical hormonal changes um, uh, of puberty, and adolescence, end, adolescence ends at the age at which we attain a stable, independent role in society. That's a really nice definition, I think, but the problem is it's so vastly different between different cultures, different countries, different individuals. And it is not very helpful for doing research because we really, as researchers, have to agree on our terminology. And we have to know that if I say I'm studying mid-adolescence, I'm talking about the same age range as other people studying mid-adolescence. And, and for many years, that was a mess. <laughs> um, and everyone defined adolescence differently. So Susan Sawyer, who is an expert in adolescence working in Australia, about four years ago, 2018, published a paper suggesting that we should all globally define adolescence as the period of life between 10 and 24, because that reflects the period in which the brain undergoes this huge amount of development until it starts stabilizing in the mid-20s and doesn't change huge amounts after that. And I am I fully embrace and endorse that idea because it makes things much simpler and it makes sense. It is true that the brain un undergoes this very large amount of development into the mid-20s. So we should probably pay attention to that. Hello, folks. Following the success of the Rethinking Education Conference, we're now looking at various ways in which we can advance the cause of this movement to do whatever it takes to create an educational ecosystem that works for all young people. If you would like to support the Rethinking Education movement, you can do so in a couple of ways. If you'd like to make a regular monthly donation, you can become a patron of the podcast. There are three different levels at which you can do so. I think they're called something like Rethinker self-regulator and fear killer, each associated with different benefits. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D. Alternatively, if you'd like to make a one-off donation, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. Again, R-E-P-O-D. 
And if you can't afford to contribute financially, you can help the movement in other ways by joining the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, for example, and by inviting your friends and colleagues to do the same. There's a link where you can do so in the show notes. Or you can like and subscribe and all that usual stuff and give us a positive review or comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can share the podcast on a social media platform of your choosing. That really helps, actually. There are links to all of our socials in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Now let's get back to this week's fascinating conversation with Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore. There's two sort of directions that I'd like to go in now, and I think let's do one and then the other. It's essentially just to, just to sketch out a brief overview of, uh, of the field, if you like, as it's developed in the last 15 years. It's first, firstly, in terms, of, um, in terms of what's actually physically happening in the brain, in terms of like white matter and grey matter and synaptic pruning and all of that fascinating stuff. And then, so what's physically happening in the brain? What are the changes that we see happening? And then the, the, the sort of the, the corollaries of that, if you like, what, what are the implications of that, the, of, of all of the things that we, that we see changing so much in the teenage years around things like risk-taking, sleep patterns, um, becoming more self-conscious or more, more concerned with appearance and so on, peer relations, emotion, agency and autonomy which is something that comes out a lot and so on and so let's do the brain first and then do sort of like, like how, to what extent can we account for these for these vast changes that we see in behaviors um based on what we know about what's happening in the brain i realize that that's an absolutely massive question but if you could sort of sketch out some of the sort of the key insights if you like that have been gleaned from this field in the last 15 years or so yep sure okay so i think i think it's nice to think about things historically so when I when I was an undergraduate 30 years ago I was taught that the human brain stopped developing in childhood and I know that I was taught that because I remember my undergraduate lectures neurodevelopmental neurobiology lectures and I have kept my undergraduate textbooks and that's exactly what they say um, and we now know so that was in in mid-90s we now know that that's completely wrong and in fact the human brain doesn't stop developing in childhood it continues to develop well after childhood right throughout adolescence into the into the mid-20s and even beyond for some brain regions and we know that because of um, new technologies such as MRI scanning MRI scanning is really the main technology that has allowed us to study scan the living human brain at all ages and to look at how brain structure and function changes across the lifespan in the living human and what those studies have shown, the stu studies were started in the mid in the 90s, uh, but they've really, you know, increased in number over the last, say, 10 or 15 years. And there have been many replications, which is so important in science. You know, one mm. finding is not a fact. In fact, many findings are not really ever a fact in science. You, um, it's just, you know, the, the, the current evidence, but the cur current evidence unequivocally, many, many studies have shown that the, um, the human brain changes both in terms of structure and, and function during childhood and adolescence. And to summarize that, I mean, it's hard to summarize it because it's complex, but um, if, we, if we focus in on structure, the composition of the brain. So one thing to say is that the volume of the brain doesn't change very much at all after about age eight or nine, change a little bit, but not much. 
um, an eight or nine year old has a similar brain overall volume size as an adult brain. But the composition of that brain changes hugely, and particularly in terms of um, well, the, the measures that we study in human in human developing brains are white matter and gray matter. So white matter uh, is found mostly in the center of the brain. It comprises long fibers uh, that are called axons and are covered in a substance called myelin, which is, if you look at it under a microscope, is white. Um, uh, and they allow, so these white matter tracts allow different regions of the brain to communicate with each other, which is crucial for brain function. And they allow neurons to communicate with each other because electrical impulses pass from one neuron along these white matter tracts, along these axons, to other to synapses, which then communicate with other neurons in the surrounding regions. Uh, so that's white matter. Gray matter is mostly found in the cortex, but not only the cortex, that's the surface of the brain. And gray matter contains a whole load of different things, including neuronal cell bodies, synapses, the connections between cells, and various other neural matter. Um, both white matter and gray matter undergo very large amounts of development in humans during childhood and adolescence. White matter, these, these, um, these white matter tracts, uh, the, the volume of white matter increases pretty steadily, linearly, um, from early childhood right through adolescence, even to ad early adulthood, the 30s in some regions. Um, and that is thought to correspond to various different neurobiological processes, uh, particularly the myelination of axons. So I mentioned that axons, these fibers along which electrical impulses pass, are covered with a substance called myelin. myelin. Well, they don't, they're not initially covered with myelin. That process of myelinating axons is a neurodevelopmental process that starts very early on in life, in the second trimester, and some for some axons and continues right throughout development. And it's really an important process because it effectively, you can think of it as effectively myelin, effectively insulating the fiber and speeding up the transmission of electrical signals along that fiber, along that axon. So it effectively makes the brain work faster. Um, Axons also grow in diameter, which has the same effect. So throughout development, axons grow, and that also has the effect of speeding up the transmission of signaling along them. Um, and so we know that you know white matter is is uh, increasing in volume throughout development, presumably because of those two underlying neurobiological processes, and that effectively speeds up. Um, uh, neuronal signaling and communication between brain regions. At the same time, there are very big changes in gray matter volume. So gray matter volume um, starts to increase during childhood. It, it, this is generalizing across the whole cortex and there are some differences, but overall in the cortex, gray, uh, gray matter volume increases during childhood. It is highest at some point in late childhood, depending on the brain region. And then it turns the other way and starts to decline. And the main change in gray matter volume during adolescence is quite a substantial decline in gray matter, um, which only starts to level off in the mid twenties. 
So, so you said earlier that white matter is the stuff that's in the middle of the brain that's like lots of white stringy stuff basically that connects the different brain regions together. What, what is happening in grey matter? Why is this not myelinated, presumably? And where, where, where are we finding the grey matter? Well, the grey matter is mostly found in the cortex, so the surface of the brain. And it contains, so if you think about a neuron, a neuron has a cell body, um, and attached to that cell body is that long axon, which becomes myelinated and turns into white matter. And then at the end of the axon are dendrites <clears throat> on which the synapses, the connections are found. And it's those, um, it's those cell bodies and those dendrites and synapses that are found in, in the gray matter. I mean, they are gray matter. <laughs> That's what the definition of gray matter is. So it's like the ends of the piece of string, if you like, the bits that look like lots of trees branching off into other trees. Yeah. Exactly, and the cell bodies where the electrical impulses are generated, where they start, um, and uh, yeah. So, grey matter. So, what? Why do we see this um, this inverted U shaped curve of grey matter volume trajectory? Um, by the way, you know these questions. Why? Do, why does white matter increase during adolescence? Why does grey matter decrease during adolescence? We don't know the answer to this. These are these are speculative speculative proposals based on um, based on animal research and post mortem human brain tissue research. Because although MRI scans have completely revolutionised the way we understand the developing brain and have given us huge amounts of insight into how the human brain develops. Um, we don't yet have the resolution in MRI scans to see the brain at the level of the cell or the synapse. I think we will one day and not too far away either, but currently we don't really have that resolution. So we have to make educa educated guesses based on what we know from cellular research in, in animals or in post-mortem human brain tissue. Now, one finding from that research is that <clears throat> a, um, in development, there's a lot of change at the level of the synapse. So the synapse are the connections between brain cells. The brain um, produces a huge number of synapses. In fact, <clears throat> um, the brain overproduces synapses so that at some point in early development, young animals, young children have many, many more synapses, many more connections in their brain than the adult brain contains. Um, and then the next process that the brain that needs to happen in the brain is the elimination, the whittling away of these excess synapses. And that happens through a process called synaptic pruning. Synaptic pruning is really interesting because it's although it's partly genetically determined, it's also partly determined by the environment that the animal is growing or human is growing up in. Um, in that synapses that are being used in a particular environment are the synapses that will remain in the brain and grow stronger. And synapses that are not being used in a particular environment are the synapses that will be eliminated or pruned away. So in that way, through this process of synaptic pruning, the environment plays a, an important role in shaping and molding the developing brain. Okay, that's absolutely fascinating. And, and roughly within that age range of ten to twenty-four, is there is there is there a period of more intense synaptic pruning? When is that happening generally? It's well, from what we know, again, from uh, the, if we're just really talking about synaptic pruning as opposed to grey matter, because you know we don't really know what underlies grey matter. We're just making an educated guess. But if we look at, say, um, uh, studies of post-mortem brain tissue. 
there was a big study about 10 years ago published by Pechnik and colleagues um, on quite a large number of post-mortem human brains. You can imagine this work is extremely difficult to do. It's painstaking. It's difficult to get hold of post-mortem brains of different ages. And then um, to count the number of synapses in slices of brain tissue is a very laborious process, which takes a long time. Um, prior, prior to that paper, by the way, there had been papers back in the 60s looking at exactly the same thing, but on a very, by, by uh, Peter Huckenlocker, which were pioneering, but they were on a very small number of brains. So I think the, you know, the, the, the reason I'm focusing on this paper by Pechenek is because they had many more brains and the data are really very convincing that, um, that in the prefrontal cortex, this is the area at the front, front of your brain that um, uh, is, is involved in all sorts of high level cognitive processes, including executive control, working memory, attention, uh, but also things like social cognition and self-awareness. Um, in that part of the brain, the number of synapses, remember this is slices of post-mortem brain tissues from humans, um, the number of synapses increases until late childhood, around the age which most children go through puberty, and then starts to decline. And actually that decline is very steep and significant right throughout the teenage years and also throughout the 20s. So I don't think from the evidence there is in, an indication that you know a particular phase is shows more synaptic pruning than, than another phase in adolescent development. But you know this is this is just if only there could be more, more studies like that to replicate it and to answer some of these more nuanced questions that would be nice. Yeah, and it leads to I've got, my head is filling up with with bridge too far type questions <laughs> about like what are the implications of of synaptic pruning for education and for example, you know the thing that we were talking about earlier the fact that the education system narrows down young people's um, options in terms of what they can you know study um, at age sixteen and then age age eighteen. Um, what does that mean in terms of in terms of synaptic pruning and and does, does like you were saying that the environment can shape what's happening inside the brain mm. are we are we are we are we sort of irreversibly pruning people's brains <laughs> you can see how this is a bridge too far yeah. and also the metaphor of pruning you know it suggests it suggests yeah. a set of secateurs doesn't it it suggests a pruner <laughs> it suggests that the, that this is sort of an, an active um process rather than sort of a, a like a, a the synaptic withering or something you know uh, metaphors are important aren't they oh yeah and i mean you, you, yes there's a lot that you know there's a very strong metaphor that many people use as um of the brain as a kind of garden <laughs> lots of trees with branches and the environment being the gardener and particularly education being the gardener i do like that metaphor um but yeah, I mean, I don't I actually don't think your questions are a bridge too far. I think they just haven't been answered yet. So um, how synaptic pruning in human adolescence, for example, uh, relates to um, how the environment shapes their brains, whether that's. Um, whether that's reversible, for example, or not, Um whether they can relearn skills. These are all open, based on their synaptic pruning. These are all 
open questions that haven't really been answered yet. It's difficult to look at those kinds of questions. Uh, we, we do think generally because of this uh, huge development, particularly in the synapses and myelination um, in the brain during adolescence, we think of it as a sensitive period of brain development in which neuroplasticity is heightened. That is the ability of the brain to um, uh, incorporate environmental input into, into its processing um, and into its structural changes. Um, neuroplasticity is heightened. And one um, consequence of that, or two consequences of that, I suppose you could say, is that this will be a period of both vulnerability and opportunity because heightened neuroplasticity means the brain is particularly susceptible to environmental input. Now, if that env environmental input is stressful and negative, that will have a particularly damaging effect on development. And perhaps that's part of the reason why Adolescence is a very vulnerable period to, for example, mental health problems. Most mental health problems start in adolescence. It's also a vulnerable period to other things like dangerous risk taking, possibly for similar reasons. Um, but it also, of course, you know, when we normally think about neuroplasticity, we think about learning and, and an opportunity for learning new things, for training, for rehabilitation, for retraining the way our you know, my, mindset works. So adolescence, I think, also with creativity represents a period of great opportunity, which sometimes isn't focused on enough. Yeah. Could you expand on that a little bit? I want to come back to, to mental health in a moment because it's such a, a huge and, and rapidly escalating problem. Um, but before we get into that, like, let's just come back to the second sort of the, the, the second side, the, the flip side, if you like, of the, the stuff that you've been talking about, about what's happening inside the brain uh, during the adolescent years. And now in terms of the, the, those sort of observable behaviours, if you like, you mentioned risk taking, creativity, peer relations, sleep. What, what like why why are those things undergoing such intense periods of change as well in, in the teenage years? Um, well, I mean, it's interesting. Like, why is is a different question from how, and I can only really answer questions about how. Why I think is more of a kind of evolutionary question, and I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but I have mentioned before that I think there is kind of evolutionary pressure on this age group becoming independent from their parents that's what they have to do you see it in all species of animal all animals go through all species of animal go through it's not just humans they all go through a period of <clears throat> a period of development between puberty and becoming fully sexually mature adults you can call that adolescence for example um rats and mice go through about 30 days of adolescence and you can see you know even in rats and mice huge amounts of research done on uh, adolescent rats and mice and behavioral and brain changes and you can see that <clears throat> um rodents change in terms of their social behavior in interestingly similar ways to humans they become much more interested in peers than they were uh, when they were prepubescent um they're more well they're more risk taking they explore their environments more and again all these behaviors that we see happening during adolescence even in animals <clears throat> um facilitate the animal becoming independent from their from their families from their parents from their mum interesting I'm, I'm just recalling i couldn't put my hand on on my copy of inventing ourselves earlier but i'm, I'm recalling there was a, there's an amazing graph in there as i recall about about the behaviors of, of adolescent rats or mice and was it the, was it about the extent to which they take drugs when they are or are not in the in the presence of their peers that they're much more likely to take drugs if their friends are watching <laughs> is, that, is that essentially 
am I remembering uh, that correctly? Yeah, more or less. So <laughs> there's a study showing that adolescent mice are more like a drink more alcohol when they're with other adolescent mice, and that's not true compared with when they're on their own. And that's not true for adult mice. So adult mice drink about the same amount of alcohol when when they're with when they're on their own as when they're with their cage mates, and you know that that you could draw analogies with humans i mean certainly it's true that most of these kinds of let's call them risk taking behaviors um in young people the risk taking behaviors that we, we 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 adults tend to worry about things like smoking and binge drinking and experimenting with drugs or dangerous driving those are behaviors that are much more likely to happen um when young people are with their friends compared with when they're on their own so you could see you could see that that, that study is an analogy of the human peer influence on risk-taking but it's difficult actually <laughs> that might be a bridge too far it's difficult to generalize from mice to humans in that way because we don't <laughs> know what's motivating those mice to drink more alcohol when they're with their cage mates yeah yeah i can see yeah, yeah absolutely i think it's a bridge too far to start speculating about what's going on in the minds of mice um but it's interesting still nevertheless isn't it and 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 mice aside it's interesting that 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 those risk-taking behaviours become more prevalent in in early years, and also, so I, I beg your pardon, in adolescent years, and also that like because it's quite a complex thing to evaluate risk. It's quite a high-level co- complex thing, isn't it? Where you can where you can think about different courses of action that you may or may not take, and what the likely consequences of those might be, and those te- those sorts of higher order. Um, processes are things that it seems that are the latest to develop so those in, in those in those brain areas things around self-regulation and decision making and planning and things that are a bit more involved they seem to develop later and do you think that that's why we see these more risky behaviors because the people like young people see the sort of the jolt of excitement that you would get from sort of you know jumping off a bridge into water say without evaluating whether there's anything spiky in the water before they jump into it Maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of these high level decision making processes, planning, futuristic thinking, counterfactual reasoning do continue to develop in adolescence. But actually, I would say that the main contributor of risk taking, uh, making making risky decisions in adolescence is not any of those processes in isolation, but it's the way they interact with emotion and particularly social processing so you know if you if you are if you if you um if you if you're in the lab and you get adolescents to do tasks where they're completely focusing on the task at hand and they um they don't have distractions around them then they often don't behave any differently from adults they don't take any more risks they understand the riskiness of actions just as well as adults do but what situation is like that in real life where you don't have any distractions at all? And particularly for an adolescent, it's normally the, often the distraction when it comes to risky decision making is friends, friends smoking, friends been drinking, friends taking drugs or danger or, you know, chatting to them or egging them on when they're dri- driving or whatever. And then we know that that's what young people, uh, that's what's developing in young people. The, the something about the social context and the way it affects decision making. And what I mean by that is um, includes peer influence on decision making. And, and we, we there's huge amounts of work done on that now, including from our lab. And what it shows is that adolescents show a heightened propensity 
to be influenced by their peers when they're making decisions. Those decisions could be risky, and that's what we tend to focus on because they're the worrying ones. <laughs> they're the worrying decisions. Mm. But it's not actually only risky decision-making. It's also things like pro-social behavior, so being kind and generous to others, and positive um, behaviors like healthy eating. The, all these uh, behaviors are in adolescence, particularly influenced by friends, by peers, what they're doing, which I think is really important to acknowledge because it has such implications for encouraging young people to make positive pro-social decisions and act in a positive pro-social way you know we we want we adults want them to do that and the way traditionally we try to encourage those decisions is to be very kind of adult focused and to educate them and to tell them the reasons why they should be making these good decisions but actually, what might work much more efficiently than that is young people themselves um, developing and even carrying out campaigns to encourage each other to make positive, healthy, pro-social decisions. And in fact, I say might. There is lots of evidence that that's the case, that interventions and campaigns that are led by young people themselves are much more effective than similar campaigns led by adults, including teachers. Yeah, absolutely. And you can uh, anecdotally as well, I think anyone who's lived or worked with teenagers, there's, it, seems to, it seems to often spike around sort of year eight or nine. In year seven, as a secondary, former secondary school teacher, in year seven, the kids are really up for just having fun and being silly and it, with, with adults and with children. And then in years eight and nine, the shutters come down and they're like, they do not want to be seen to be listening to the adults. They definitely seem to defer to their peer group as the, as the sort of the source of of, of the basis on which they make decisions and like you say you can that makes evolutionary sense doesn't it as they're as they're moving into adulthood they need to they need to find their own way and if they if they're going to stop you know like deferring to adults then they need to have a, a new sort of a if you, like, like a trusted network but also a sort of an authority base if you like like the the, the, the authority of the of the tribe you know um, yeah to, 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 definitely to and, I mean years eight to nine so that's like 12 to 14 isn't it age 12 to 14 years um, I mean, <laughs> that is when such a huge amount of transition is happening, both in the body, you know, they're going through puberty, they're starting to look more like adults, that has an indirect effect on how they're treated, society treats them differently, because they look older, they're given more responsibility, more autonomy, more, more culpability, um, they're given more social pressures to look a certain way, particularly girls, but not only girls, boys as well. Um, at the same time, you look inside their brain, their brain is undergoing huge amounts of change, reorganization, their minds are changing, their cognitive development is becoming more sophisticated. So they are developing skills that allow them to understand their own minds, other people's minds, to evaluate what other people are thinking about them, to take other people's perspectives more, um, to think about the future, maybe to worry about the future. Uh, you know, this is the that, that is probably the age at which all these changes are at their highest. And what I find interesting is that when we talk about, oh, you know, the shutters come down at that age, they don't want to pay any attention to adults. We immediately think we've got to change that. We've got to try to encourage them to pay attention to us adults rather than saying, hang on a minute, well, what, who would they pay attention to? And how can we kind of empower them to um, influence each other in positive ways rather than just trying to you know we're not going to change all those all those transition points in in young people's 
bodies and minds and brains. We can't change that. So rather than trying to change it and trying to make them behave like we want them to behave, why, why not give them a voice and empower them to help each other make positive decisions? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and again, I've, I've seen, you know, really good evidence and, and, um, and lots of the work that I have done has been rooted in exactly that. And there's lots of there's lots of overlaps as well. You were talking earlier about self-monitoring. Um, and that's a huge part of the work that I've been doing in, in learning to learn in helping young people and trying to carve out spaces within the mainstream education system to an, allow young people to make these decisions and to and to carry the consequences of those decisions in a kind of a risk-free way, if you like, just so that they can they can see what it's like if you don't do your homework. And you're like, oh well, your project isn't as far ahead as your as you as it might be, you know. And so you're not going to you know get as much out of this process. And so so you you can carve out ways in which you can enable your people to to start to monitor and control their thoughts feelings and behaviors and that, I think it's really important that we do that and I think that generally speaking it's a broad broad stroke but the 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 education system is very externally regulated by adults from the top down and and there's very little um leeway for young people to 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 make those decisions and to make those connections and to to explore ideas in in an open-ended way it's all sort of working towards this predetermined end point yeah. that often the young people haven't really signed up to yeah and i think we're really missing a trick i mean the, the way i think of it and this is um a kind of theory that's come out of some of our research over the last years and not just our research other people's too is this idea that social risk, we, so we, we think we've been talking about adolescents as risk takers, but actually maybe we should kind of flip that round and think that um, adolescents are actually very risk averse. They are averse. They, they don't like taking social risks. That's the one risk they will often try to avoid. And what I mean by social risk is the risk of being socially excluded, excluded by their peers. If there's a chance of them being socially excluded, then they will avoid that even if it means taking health risks or legal risks. So, you know, the classic example, you get a very educated, intelligent teenage girl, say, 13-year-old girl, all her friends are smoking, they offer her a cigarette. Well, for her, what is the more risky decision? Saying yes to a cigarette, even though she knows that cigarettes carry major health risks, or saying no and risking being ostracized by her peer group. Well, we would argue that for that age, the, you know, particularly kind of the young mid-adolescent age group, Taking social risks is really something that they want, they're motivated to avoid. They're hypersensitive to being socially excluded. That's been shown. <clears throat> and it's so important to be accepted by their peer group and affiliate with their peer group that they will are motivated to do, you know, <laughs> to, to make decisions that um that that reduce the risk of being socially excluded. So in some ways you can think of adolescents as being quite risk averse. They're averse to taking social risks over and above everything else. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. I can see that. And it's also, you also see lots of, of like, like pushing at boundaries generally in the teenage years and especially around friendship groups. And there's often sort of like quite severe betrayals of, of formerly previously trusted friends that it seems to be part of the role of the teenage uh, is to is to just to flex those boundaries and to see what happens and how far you can push things and before they snap before you before they can go back and and so there's, there's lots of experimentation that's that's happening at that time um, and as you can as you as you said you used that phrase earlier that this this period of time of incredible social change like you say physical change hormonal change and and things that are happening in the brain 
all at once. You know, like people used to, a while ago, Ofsted wrote this report and they called it, um, I think it was the wasted years, key stage three, the wasted years, age 11 to 14, because often there's a dip um, academically that it doesn't just track upwards as no. somebody, somebody with a graph and a ruler would love human development to just go in a nice neat line. <laughs> and, and you know, but to, 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 to say that these are the wasted years, like if you look at what's happening in those kids' brains, in their minds, in their social worlds, um, it's not surprising <laughs> that there's going to be a little wobble around that point in terms of their linear progress, in terms of you know geography attainment or whatever <laughs> it might be. Um, and and so, so so you wrote a, an article a while ago. I know you've been, you've been involved in the rethinking assessment um, group, uh, and you wrote a piece where you use this word misalignment um, around our understanding of what happens in brains and our and our knowledge of what happens in schools. Um, and I wonder what's like again just as, as a sort of as a general introduction here what what do you see as the misalignment what's the evidence for there being a misalignment what are we what are we getting wrong currently in the way that we educate young people that sort of comes into conflict with what we understand about what's happening in their brains yeah I think again going kind of looking at at it from a historical perspective, um, a lot of the British education system was introduced, the, fun, the foundations of it, the fundamentals of it, way before we knew anything about how the brain develops or even how the mind develops, uh, particularly in teenagers, but also in children. And you know, to take one example, which I often do, GCSEs. GCSEs were brought in in the late 80s. Late 80s, we knew nothing about how the teenage brain develops. And as I've said previously, it was assumed even by neuroscientists that the human brain stops developing in childhood. So that was the kind of basis on which GCSEs were. I mean, I expect they didn't even think about neuroscience, but you know, that that was the, 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 the science at the time. We now know, we still have GCSEs. In fact, we have more GCSEs. We have more linear GCSEs, less coursework, more exams in terms of quantity of exams but also um, amount of information to be learnt but the science has really moved on as I've been talking about you know we now know that the human brain undergoes vast change throughout the teenage years and 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 also not just the brain but the mind uh, including things like um, I don't know planning and exploration and decision making and creativity creativity is has been shown to be higher in teenagers than in adults and yet the you know, that, that's what I mean by misalignment. The education system just hasn't, in the teenagers, hasn't caught up with those that new science, that new evidence base. If you knew that, would you really get, if, if you know, when you're designing the education system and thinking about what assessments young people should be taking, knowing that their brains are undergoing huge amounts of development, that neuroplasticity is heightened, that their ability to learn and explore and create is heightened, would you really impose such a huge amount of assessment in in the form of exams on them where they have to rote learn a massive amount of information at that exact age so that's what I meant by the misalignment um but it there's also the mental health issue as well and I think that is really important um you know the, the, the there's a mental health crisis in teenagers in this country and in many other countries around the world and there is no doubt about that you know the um mental health problems have increased in the past uh in the past 20 years in young people it is partly because of awareness we're just more aware of mental health problems we're more um 
willing to talk about them there's less stigma that's no bad thing but it's not only that all the I'm not a clinician but all the clinical psychologists and child and adolescent psychiatrists I work with or I speak to agree that there has also been a real increase in the prevalence of adolescent mental health problems particularly um, uh, affective problems like depression eating disorders um, self-harm anxiety and particularly in girls, but not just in girls. Um, and, and by the way, that was exacerbated by the pandemic recently. Um, rates of those kinds of mental health problems increased even more dramatically in, in the, two, in the uh, past two years, probably due to all sorts of aspects of the pandemic, but largely, I guess, to um, the social isolation during lockdowns and school closures and the kind of insecurity of not knowing what's, you know, what's going to happen and and the disruption to education and to peer interactions I think most importantly um so yeah I think I think you know there is there is a mental health crisis and you can come at it you know everyone knows about it it's talked about a lot you can come at it from a lot of different angles but one one way to think about it is why has there been an increase in mental health problems over the last 10 or 20 years in young people in this country and you know, one thing you can do is ask young people themselves, what is the, what are the things in your life that cause you most stress, most anxiety? And survey after survey show that the, in the top three are things like exam, stress, academic pressure, fear of failure. But those tend to be ignored for some reason. I, I can't figure out why, but they that tends to be ignored. And it's, it's as if, well, you know, that's just education. We've always done it this way. We've always had exams. So we, it was okay for us. So why isn't it okay for them? But we should listen to the young people and what they're telling us about what stresses them out. Instead, I think there's this tendency for policymakers to jump on something more kind of tangible and easy to criticize like social media you know that's the that's at the moment that's the big keyword around mental health problems in adolescence you know social media causes lots of problems in in um self-evaluation cyberbullying social interactions that kind of thing uh, and that might be true to a certain extent but it, if if you look at the evidence the effect sizes are very very small and actually not really, it, you know, there doesn't seem to be much of a relationship between social media use and well-being, um, except possibly at certain precise ages. That's a study we've, we've just published um, around puberty. And then again, around ni- age 19, there does seem to be a very small relationship where increased social media use leads to more de- higher depression rates or higher higher rates of um low life life satisfaction a year later but these effects are tiny compared with um young people saying that they feel that the most stressful things in their life revolve around academic pressure and exam stress yeah absolutely and and it's very interesting as you say that that people seem unwilling to 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 have that conversation or to accept that is quite a bitter truth I think for people working in education uh you know like we nobody wants to feel like they are a part of the reason that kids are self-harming and feeling terrible about themselves of course understandably and 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 also on the flip side you could argue that schools 
offer a source of stability and and um, can be a hugely positive influence on young people's lives, especially young people who have uh, unstable home lives. And so it's a complex picture, this one. But the data, as you say, are all heading in one direction. And as you say, this was exacerbated by the pandemic, but but it was pre-pandemic. I saw I saw um, that you cited a statistic about just calls to childline um, <clears throat> about exam stress, workload, fear of failure had doubled between 2015-16 and 2018-19. So they doubled within the space of three years, and that was pre-pandemic. Um, and I, was, I just wonder, and, and this, go, this goes back as well. I was reading recently Peter Gray's book. I don't know if you've read his book, Free to, Free to Learn or Freedom to Learn. He's a really interesting guy. Um, and he was talking about this, 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 these trends have been going back to like the 50s. Um, the, the schooling used to be done very differently. I wonder, I don't know if this is sort of outside of your area of expertise, but I wonder if you have a sense as to why it's increasing so much. Because like, you know, schools have been, around for a long time exams have been around for a long time what is it that's causing this uptick in mental ill health among young people do you think i think it's multifaceted it's not just going to be one thing it's not just going to be exam pressure uh, i think i mean that you know that social media aside i think social media probably just amplifies a lot of the stresses in young people's lives so it has a role to play but i don't think it's the the key cause um, I mean, from the evidence, I don't think it's the key cause. I think young people are under more pressure these days than they were, say, 30 years ago in terms of things like um, climate, climate change. You know, a lot of young people are really worried about their futures and the climate. Um, they are worried about the, um, their financial futures, whether they're going to get a job, whether they're going to get ever get on the housing ladder. I mean, these are questions that if you ask young people, a lot of them will talk to you about their worries about this, whereas I don't remember anyone even it being aware of these kinds of things when I was a teenager. We were aware of um, of climate change um, to a certain extent, but not to the kind of existential crisis that young people feel now. Um, we didn't really talk about, you know, jobs and buying a house. Just wasn't wasn't a worry back then so much as it is now. Um, <clears throat> and then there's the academic pressure, and you know, the, the talking to teachers is the main source of information about how, for me, about how um, the assessment, the pressure of assessments has changed over the last 10 or 20 years and how now there is much more assessment, not just GCSEs, but also SATs, but in terms of GCSEs, how the amount of information has increased that children, that young people have to learn and the number of exams because there's no coursework or most subjects, no coursework, these days so the number of exams has increased and like Rachel Sylvester said and I heard her um, uh, podcast with you um, you know we've got to the point where the tail is really wagging the dog and 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 that pressure is put on teachers and schools it's not just pupils who are under pressure you know that the teachers to get their all their students through their GCSEs and passing their GCSEs is huge and it's no wonder that there's so much uh, stress amongst teachers and teacher burnout, which we hear about all the time. You know, it's not just the students who are suffering as a consequence, I think, of our um, increased focus on, on exams in the in the assessment system. And the Times Education Commission, which I was involved with and which Rachel Sylvester talks about on your podcast, um, which is published online, open access, as well as rethinking assessment, which was happening around the same time, you know, both 
<clears throat> of those initiatives ended up with the same conclusion, which is that the assessment system in this country is really pivotal. It's really key to everything. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to think about the purpose of education, why do we educate children? We educate them not just to learn, but also to develop skills, to, de to develop character, to develop social skills, and all sorts of other um, aspects. It's not just about academic learning. Um, but in order to do that, you have to have time to enable that. And if you're spending all your time having to teach more and more information to be examined on, then there is going that all those other things are just going to be squeezed out. So we need to start with the assessment system and it, rethink it, evaluate it, change it so that then that allows more uh, time and mental space to develop other other important aspects of, 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 of development like skills and character. Mm, absolutely and thank you very much and, and there's so much in there and you, you firstly you're dead right that this is not just young people the, the mental health crisis is you know is a, you know affecting adults as well and and as, as teachers in particular uh the, the the mental health of teachers is under strain i think because of that same sort of top-down accountability system oh, it's not just um, teachers either but also university lecturers you know um like like we were saying adolescence doesn't just end at 18 um the vulnerability to mental health problems continues right throughout um the you know the late teens early 20s and we see this the crisis continues in in students in in, in universities and again well that's that's you know real crisis and it's 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 an emergency really because mental health problems are very serious and they can end in morbidity and even mortality uh, but it also then has a knock-on effect to stress amongst lecturers and professors who who like teachers are the ones at the coalface you know the ones dealing day-to-day -day with students like when we teach students I guess this is true for teachers as well as me and my colleagues in universities <clears throat> we're not just we're not just teaching them about the subject they're learning in my case neuroscience we're also looking around the room and trying to gauge whether anyone is having a crisis and whether anyone needs help and extra support. Yeah. I mean, that we're not trained to do that. We have no training in this, but we, we do it because we know that there's a certain fraction of young people who will be having a crisis and will need extra support. And we worry about that. Yeah, absolutely. And lots of people are sort of <clears throat> promoting well-being. Uh, type activities and you know do yoga and, and meditation and so on and um, have people to talk to but it seems like that's sort of as a sticking plaster it's sort of like it's almost like putting the problem locating the problem in the child or in the person and saying it's up to you to learn how to how to be well in this really really stressful toxic environment yeah rather than changing things systemically yeah, absolutely. And it's and and also the, the, something that came up as you were talking about climate change. There's something I had a really interesting previous episode of the of the podcast with a guy called John Higgs, who's um, a, an author, uh, like a, a sort of a, a cultural historian. And he wrote a, a book called The Future Starts Here, where he was saying that like, there's just no positive stories about the future that like you don't hear. Like 20 or 30, 50 years ago, people were doing things like on Blue Peter, they bury a time capsule and say, oh, let's dig this up in 5,000 years. What might society like be like then? And now you don't hear anybody 
sort of like even expecting that we're going to still be here in in, in 50 years or 100 years it's all doom and gloom the, 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 the stories about the future we need to have a way of, of of creating positive narratives about the future realistic narratives about the future yeah and i, I do i think that that's possibly where social media and just the media in general come in because you know you're much more likely to click on a scary doom ridden story um than something that's just neutral or vaguely positive um and and the media and social media know that if it bleeds it leads and so it kind of exacerbates yeah the message <laughs> it does it does but but you know, i mean it's it's very clear that we need to uh, as you say i think that the gcse has been identified quite rightly as this this like, you know and having just gone through this with my son I can't remember how many hours it was, but it was ridiculous number of hours of exams, like 30 or 40 ex- hours of exams in the space of a month. Mm, that's much more than was the case 30 years ago. Yeah. And, and as you also pointed out, it, it's all end of end of year 11 terminal exams now. And, it, and it, when I was teaching only sort of right. less than 10 years ago, we had modular exams. And so you did them, you know, at the end of each half term. And it was it was it really sp- it spread the load and made it you know that kids could retake things if they if they didn't get the best mark that they could have done the first time around they could have another bite of the cherry and it doesn't seem that there's any harm in that like it seems ridiculous it almost seems like the assessment system is designed to trip some kids up you know if you look at the way that some exams are written for example it's like we need to figure out a way to filter these kids into the the a, a to g grades or nine to ones as they are now yeah and so we need to figure out all these different ways that we can just sort of you know, like for example, putting a, a time limit on the exam so they got right really, really fast, increasing the amount of stress. <laughs> exactly. Jeff Barton, the head of the Schools and Colleges Association, talks about this a lot. The fact that GCSEs, the whole kind of scaling of the, the, the grades, are mean by definition that there's going to be a third of people who fail, who get under four. Um, Which is outrageous, isn't it? We talk about this a lot on this podcast. They're designed to do that which is just makes no sense a fa- a, a failure factory we've literally made a failure factory mm. and if you zoom out like it's not that hard that's actually not true it's really hard <laughs> to think about alternatives to, to exams and i talked about this in the conversation with rachel sylvester yeah. and you mentioned coursework yeah. earlier for example i was talking with some friends over the weekend um some teacher friends and they were talking about coursework and they were saying oh, yeah. that it was it's a nightmare easily like, gamed marking coursework yeah, easily game. The teachers were having to chase kids yeah. up and essentially write their coursework for them while making it look like they weren't, or the, the, those who had yeah. parents at home who were helping or tutors. And so people like people often say that the exam system, as imperfect as it is, it's the least bad method that we've come up with of providing a more or less level playing field where kids from all kinds of different backgrounds can compete in that same highly stressful one hour, 30 minute exam, they're at least all being tested on the same stuff. And so it gives us some sort of a way of, of measuring their, the, the, you know where that kid is at that doesn't take into account the biases of their teachers or, or the ability of tutors to, to you know, do their coursework for them. Yeah, I do take that point that, that, that there are lots of bad options, maybe exams the least bad, but why maximize the number of this least bad option (laughs) by increasing the number of exams the other thing that's changed in the last few years is that now in this country for the first time ever young people have to stay in some form of educational training until the age of 18 that is a real kind of game changer in terms of how we think about 60 exams at 16 or assessment at 16 do we really need assessment at 16 Mm. the 16 year old assessments uh, cse's 
um, O-levels, GCSEs were brought in originally uh, for the for the for the vast majority of the country who left school at 15, 16. So they have a leaving certificate for those people, but that's now not an option. Mm. <laughs> um, and most countries that have that where where young people are expected to be in some kind of educational training until 18 don't have two two sets of very high stakes national exams age 16 and 18 we are an exception now I mean they might have exams age 16 and they might be quite hard exams but they're not the national set nationally assessed very high stakes exams uh, like like GCSEs are yeah and the fact that they're all done in one month as well as you as, as you've said elsewhere I think that, that in that in that particular period of time age 15 or 16 I mean one thing that's really interesting is that that comes out in your work is that there's huge variation you know we were talking about like the tracking of gray matter and white matter and what have you and, and myelination but there's also huge variation isn't there in cortical development and so we're taking this snapshot um of um, of what's going on in this in this one month of, of time, depending irrelevant as to whether you are summer born or you know autumn born, which we know has huge consequences yeah. for education and mental health and life outcomes. Um, we're doing this, it's sort of inherently unfair, isn't it, that we that we sort of just take this narrow slice of time and measure everybody on the same playing field because actually they're not all playing on the same playing field. Some of their brains are developed far, far in advance of, of others at that time. I think in a way that's one of the most crucial points that there are the individual differences, the differences between people as they develop in, in every way, their brains, their minds, their motivations, their contexts, the family situations they're growing up in, the their culture they're growing up in, whatever it might be are vast and yet we our education system is still one size fits all really mm. there's no allowing for the individual differences but the individual differences are way bigger than the you know than the averages <laughs> it just doesn't have to be that doesn't it we could have a body because it's top down isn't it we've got this top down assessment system and, and and it's like a tractor beam kids i don't know how young kids are when they on average they they learn about gcse's I imagine it's around five or six or something. They'll hear about it. They hear it spoken about at school. They, they know that they're on course with yeah. this thing through, through which all must pass. And as you say, through which some must fail. And that's, it just doesn't have to be that way. We can have a bottom up accountability system, which is about celebrating the, the, mild, the milestones and, and developmental achievements of young people in the way that music grades work, for example, you know, so mm. it's, and, and they're optional. You don't have to do your music grades if you can still be really good at the piano or the cello or whatever it is that you want to play. Um, but you can choose to be assessed in those things and and you can do that at a time of your choosing. And, and it seems like education could be like that so that every yeah. kid comes out of the education system with a bunch of of examples of things that they've that they've you know developed and learned about on the way and it doesn't have to be this like oh I got a grade three which in a music grade system is like yeah you got your grade three but in the GCSE system grade three is like oh that's not that's not a pass so unlucky I know that's failed yeah <laughs> exactly um yeah and I think it's really interesting that companies like PwC the accountancy firm are trialing and have been for the last few years trialing a system where they just completely ignore they are blind to uh, school grades and even university degrees grades and they 
are judging uh, job applicants more based on assessment and written verbal assessments, group work, projects, that kind of thing. I think that's really interesting and, you know, telling in a way that they obviously realise that by by, you know, when, when we were at university and until quite recently, they would join the milk round and they would try to recruit people with two ones or above from Russell Group Universities, or whatever, and they're with great GCSEs and A-level grades. And they obviously realised that by doing that, they're missing out on some potentially really brilliant minds, creative, brilliant people who might not have taken that conventional route or happened to be someone who's really good at passing multiple exams and getting really good GCSE results. But that doesn't mean they won't be a you know creative hard-working innovative adult <laughs> mm, absolutely absolutely so, so I'd like to come on to the to the three sort of final questions in a moment the the three questions about rethinking education if you like positives challenges and fixes but first I'd just like to briefly ask you about something that's a, a just a, it's a bugbear I suppose of mine but something that, that comes up a lot when we talk about this and that's the 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 sort of the the spectrum of like coercion to autonomy, if you like, um, and and I wonder if there's if there's any evidence that you that you've come across in in your travels in, in neuroscience, in terms of the input. Like young people often say that they don't feel. You, you said just a few moments ago, we need to listen to young people. We need to listen to their experiences and take them seriously. And that, by the way, I'm very proud that that we've, we're doing that with this conference that's coming up soon. We've got 12 sessions at this at a face to face conference being run by young people. And they're amazing. I really urge people. There's one in particular that I've I'll mentioned just because I've seen it. There's a guy called Andrew Spate, who's based up in Blackpool, who's coming down to the conference. And his his presentation, he's done, submitted his video uh, contribution, which is about, about um, how to take the, the mental health problem really seriously in schools, is so brilliant and insightful. And he's come up with this whole theoretical framework for different levels at which we can reform the system listening to young people is clearly a really important thing that doesn't happen like I've never been to an education conference where young people are actually on the platform sometimes they're wheeled out to do a little turn and they play the play a song or whatever but we're not listening to their lived experience and taking their their ideas really seriously um and so for, for me it seems important that we that we do that but also that we that we do that within the education system that we allow much more scope for young people to make choices about what they do and when and whether, for example, they want to be assessed in something. So for example, it could be a consent-based system where a teacher would say, would you like some feedback on that piece of work? And the kid would have the right to say, actually, no, I don't want to be assessed against my will. And so it seems to be something that, that to me, it's, it's almost like I am in, intuitively sort of aligned with this, with this idea that we need to give kids more choice and that coercion is the wrong way to go about educating young people, even if it gets good results in the short term. But I don't know whether that's just my predilection, whether it's my sort of political or moral palette. I wonder whether there's anything that you come across in, in the research that you've done about, the, about this, this sort of axis of, of choice versus coercion. Mm, I thought about that. I mean, I don't, I don't think we've done any research on it recently. Um, but I thought about it a lot during the pandemic. And I thought one of the reasons why, you know, some some young people, it's, it's worth acknowledging, um, did better at not going to school during school closures in the pandemic than when they than normally when they're made to go to school. And that, that is worth remembering. It's not a, you know, it's not a insignificant fraction it was really quite a large fraction of of children and young people and whether that's because they just find school very 
pressurized, socially pressurized, academically pressurized, maybe they're bullied at school. It did make me think, you know, again, this one size fits all. We force children and young people to go into schools every day, even if they don't like it. <laughs> and even if they're damaged by being bullied, for example, you know, bullying is a huge problem. There's lots of research on bullying. Bullying is um, a major risk for later mental health problems like depression. And, you know, bullying is something that in principle is is changeable. You can do something about it. What to do about it is a bit is a massive question. And of course, if we knew, then we would be every country in the world would be doing something about it. But in principle, we can find the you know interventions that reduce bullying, and that will have good outcomes in theory. Uh, but yeah, so it did make me think. It's really interesting, isn't it, that we don't question. Uh, most of us anyway, don't question the idea that children have to go to school. They have to go into these schools, which look, you know, identical, really, all around the world and look the same as they did 400 years ago with classrooms and desks and a teacher at the front, even if they don't want to go there. Um, and it, But it also made me think the other group of children who and young people who really didn't like not being at school, you know, the ones who didn't like the, the, the social isolation or social deprivation of social contact, face to face contact with friends, and they didn't like the, the loneliness of it, and they didn't like the lack of routine and structure. I think that was probably, you know, perhaps not the majority, but a very large fraction of, of children and young people really found it difficult to be out of school. Um, and it made me think, you know, what, why, why is that? And I think one of the, one of the elements of adolescence is learning to become an autonomous adult, making your own autonomous decisions. And there will be some kind of evolutionary adaptive drive for autonomy, wanting to not just do what your parents and teachers tell you, but making your own decision. I mean, they might also be the decisions that your friends are making. <laughs> um, so it's not completely autonomous, but wanting some say in how you live your life. And, you know, that causes a lot of friction between young people in their, and the adults in their lives sometimes. Um, but it is a really important part of growing up. It's a really important part of the whole purpose of adolescence. Um, and I, I thought in the pandemic, well, you know, that that is one thing that is completely already young people don't have as much autonomy as they want. They're made to go to school. They're made to study. They're made to do exams and all these things that they may or may not want to be doing every single day. You know, they might not like all their lessons. That doesn't mean they can't do their lessons. They have to still do them. Um, and in the in the pandemic, that any sense of control over in their environment was just swept away from under their feet you know that then they they were we all were told to stay at home all the time apart from you know one hour and not to uh, not to interact with anyone face to face now as adults we don't we don't have that as much of a drive for autonomy and um making our own decisions as i think adolescents do so i think for them that was particularly hard just to have no control over their lives for a period and not know the uncertainty of it uncertainty of it I mean I think it's easy to forget how difficult it was to live with that uncertainty when is this going to end when are they going to be able to go back to school and then even after that you know school was not the same and they would have to be isolated for 10 days if one of their bubble one of a got COVID I mean that that's pretty difficult when you're a young person and all you want to do is have some control over your actions and your environment. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. So you, you, you very. Uh, it's pleasingly reaffirmed my my natural um, inclination. There, it, I, I think it's, it's it, I mean, I think that the key point that you made there is that that you know, like this whole this whole idea of inventing ourselves that that adolescence is a process of becoming more autonomous, and if we're not giving kids the, the ability to make decisions and to 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 make those decisions in in a sort of in a semi supervised environment, right, where we're allowing them to make decisions and to go off piece a little bit and to understand what that feels like so that they can learn how to make decisions because you have to practice this and there's somebody that another former guest Naomi Fisher who's really interesting who's a clinical psychologist who says that often with the she works with children and adults but she says that the adults who come to see her often say things like I don't feel like I'm in control of my life I don't feel like I can turn this around they they feel powerless and I think it's partly that you have to practice that stuff you have to practice being agentic it's not something that necessarily comes naturally to people if you, you can you can quite easily go through your life just being told what to do and, and conforming to your peer group and not really ever sort of having to 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 make to make decisions about your life but you can learn how to do that stuff you know with the help of a good therapist often with in, in adult life people can learn to do that but we can teach kids how to do that much earlier on and then maybe we could save some bills on therapy later on <laughs> yeah and i mean i i guess that's a a nice thing, a nice point to make that, you know, I've been talking about heightened neuroplasticity in the adolescent brain, but plasticity doesn't just stop after adolescence. The brain remains plastic throughout life. The adult brain is highly plastic. That's how we learn, uh, you know, new, new information. There's no limit to, there's no age limit to learning. We can learn new vocabulary, new facts, new roots or whatever at any age. And that's because the brain remains plastic, remains changeable throughout our lives. Um, and that's why in, you know, one of the reasons why as long as you're motivated in later life, therapy can work to change mindsets, even in adulthood, but yes, mm. heightened neuroplasticity in adolescence mean that means that it might be even more uh, efficient, effective. So, so let's come into these, these final three questions and we'll do this as a sort of semi quick fire round. We'll wrap this up in the next sort of 10 minutes or so, if that's okay. Um, the first one is positives. We've talked about some of the problems in the education system. What, what do you see that we're getting right currently? I mean, we can criticize, you know, it's very easy to criticize the education system and that and, and, and important to do in order to elicit change. But I think just always remembering that education is a basic human right. And, you you know, you only have to think about countries where education isn't available, school isn't available to all children. And you realise how lucky you are to live in a country where our children go to school mm. throughout their ch- childhoods right up until age 18. And then they, you know, some of them continue in, 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 in further education after that and higher education. But um uh, yeah, so I mean, you always kind of grounding your criticisms in in the idea that education is 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 crucial to development, to health, to happiness um, of the nation. But I think another thing, you know, is easy to forget about schools is the about the benefits of schools and what we're doing right in schools is the influence teachers can have. So I've been talking about um, peer influence on adolescents, but that's not to say, of course, that adults don't have any influence. My gosh, adults are so important in 
educating young people, providing them with support and information and knowledge and wisdom and, um, you know, can be have real insights into children and their strengths and difficulties. And everyone you ask will be able to name a teacher who was inspirational to them or who encouraged them when others didn't or who just did something to that they remember as positive and and you know teachers are often I think not given the credit they are due in all of this because they're dedicating their lives to improving the developments and learning and skills and happiness of young people uh, children and young people and that that's really crucial and that's something that we're still getting right although as we have been talking about you know we're getting it right but perhaps we're not maintaining that appreciation and you do see higher and higher levels of teacher stress and teacher burnout that's a really really serious problem yeah absolutely we definitely make it difficult for ourselves it's it's really frustrating because it's like it, i i can see this amazing educational ecosystem that's emancipatory and where people are liberated and trusted to make good decisions and it's really not that hard to get from where we are to where we need to be but we definitely make things difficult for ourselves which which brings us into the second of these final three questions the challenges if you had to pick one thing and this might draw back on some some things yeah no it's not easy is it uh it might draw uh, hark back to something that we've talked about already or it could be something else that you've thought that you've thought about what's the major thing if you if you could have the ear of whoever the incumbent uh education secretary will be when we're through this period of political upheaval if we ever get through the other side of it um what's the one thing that you think right we really need to nail this urgently yeah, I think, I mean, it, it is a bit of a cheat answer because it has lots of kind of subsections, but I think I would say the assessment system for the reasons I've been talking about, but also because the assessment system has knock-on effects to other areas like men- the mental health of young people, which is a huge crisis at the moment and needs to be tackled. That will have long-term consequences that will affect uh, people for a long time and will affect the economy. You know, there's huge amounts of evidence for that. So that needs to be tackled. And maybe one way of tackling that, not the only way, is is thinking about whether the assessment system is really optimal for the mental health and happiness of young people. Uh, and also that it also tackles the kind of one size fits all problem. The current education system is one size fits all. But, it, you know, it's all, all there's an analogy of... <laughs> a kind of myth of an army finding the average shoe size of all the soldiers and just um, making loads of shoes in that average shoe size, which didn't actually fit a single soldier. (laughs) I mean, I assume it's a myth, but it's a nice analogy, although it's a bit extreme. You know, there isn't, there are so many individual differences. There is probably not one education system that that suits every that suits everyone or even you know many people uh, it's the it's the most parsimonious way of doing things but is it the right way of doing things and again does it does the fact that we have a one size fits all system um does it really help with the mental health and happiness of young people mm. i'm not Thank sure you. it does I like I like that. It is like a bit like a mothership of the answers because it contains lots and lots of other things within it. Um, but it seems like if you had that, if you had a more open-ended, a, a more responsive, diverse, intelligent assessment system that was an that whether where, where the kids had agency about when what they're assessed in, when and 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 at what level and so on. Um, it seems like that would be more of an emancipatory mechanism. They would feel more empowered. 
it would be less stressful um, in terms of their mental health. It seems like that is the way to go. And so, and so then the fix is, the, 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 the solution is the big question. And I'm, I know that you've been deeply involved with these, in these conversations with the Rethinking Assessment Group, but how do we get from, from here to there? And I know that that's a hard question to end on, but I'll do it anyway. Yeah, I don't know. It's not, you know, I'm not an expert in in these things. So it's it's not, um, I don't have the magic solution, but I think listening more like, like uh, the Times Education Commission did and the Rethinking Assessment Group are doing, listening more to, um, well, not only to teachers and education stakeholders, but also to people like business leaders and, uh, people who work in universities, but most importantly to young people themselves, their voice has to be heard. They, in a way, have a very good insight into what will suit them. And yet we continue to ignore their voice and they they continue in silence, which I think we're really missing a trick. And the education system could be a lot more fruitful if we involve the voice of young people more. Beautiful. I could not agree more. Um, well, thank you very much. What a brilliant end, uh, what a brilliant note to end on. Uh, I'm really grateful to you for, for sharing your time with me this morning. As a parting comments, is there anything that's coming up for you on, on your radar that you're excited about? Is there anything that you would like to draw our listeners' attention to? Just gonna have a think about that. Um... Okay, take your time. I'm trying to think whether I'm really missing something obvious, but I can't think of anything that, you know, similar to something like the Times Education Commission or something exciting that is being done at a national level. Um, it will be, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the um, Secretary of State for Education, <laughs> who that turns out to be and what they what they do with education next. Um I think, you know, until we know more, then it's hard to... It is, isn't it? And because, you know, they're, they're planning for what's likely to be a two-year a two-year mm. electoral cycle. It's not really yeah. long enough <laughs> to, to get things, to, to, to implement the kinds of change that we've been talking about. Um, no, and really, like the Times Education Commission concluded, we need education change to sort of outlive um electoral cycles so not to be limited to under five years under four years but actually have a much longer term view that you know in 15 years time these are our goals for our education system it's very difficult to persuade um uh government to to see it like that in that kind of medium term longer term view it is, but that does feel like something that could be put through in the space of two years, a piece of legislation that devolves education policy making to a to a cross party parliamentary group. You know, I mean, Rob, Robert Halfon would be ideal to to push that through. I think that would. I think he's very dedicated to trying to optimize education in this country and non in a non partisan way. He seems to be anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, do, I, I do think that there's support for that idea. Who knows? Maybe that will happen in the next in the next two years. Well, uh, time will tell. Well, thank you again. I've really enjoyed spending this time with you. Okay, thanks a lot. Nice to meet you. Take care. Bye. Time is a measure of change.